0: Welcome to another episode of the Arcananth podcast. I'm your host, Michael, and this is the podcast all about people, both those who lived in the past and those living today. Today, my guest is Johnny Miller. Johnny, are you there? Hello. I'm good. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Oh, and thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really excited to get started here. Um, I'm doing well today because uh, the the podcast is really busy. I'm trying to get in a lot of interviews before the Christmas break or the winter break. Do you have a lot of uh, work that you're doing at the moment? Are you really busy?
1: Oh, always, yeah. I'm always feeling like I'm floating around on a life raft in grad school, but um, I'm getting by. Yeah. And
0: so you mentioned that you're at grad school. What are you doing at the moment for grad school? Uh,
1: So I am going to uh, University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Um, I'm studying Mediterranean archaeology for my master's, and I'm writing my thesis on the cult of Magna Mater Mm -hmm. in ancient Rome and the gender identity of her priests. Wow. Um, So for people who don't know
0: much about this uh, cult or what time period that we're looking at, can you sort of set the
1: Scene for us? Sure. Uh, so in Rome, uh, they, during the Punic Wars, the Second Punic War, uh, about around third uh, century BCE, um, they were getting their butts kicked. And so they uh, looked to some or- oracle books uh, called the Sibylline books um, to figure out what to do to turn the tides of war. Um, and one of these things was to build a bunch of temples. And one of those temples was to in a Near Eastern goddess uh, called Kibele, And in Rome, she became known as Magna Mater, or the Great Mother. Uh, and after she came to Rome, um, her cult came with her and her cult was very interesting uh, because they were priests who were eunuchs. And after um, going through a ritual of self-castration, they would take on women's names mm-hmm. and they would live their lives as women, calling each other sisters, uh, dressing as women and so on and so forth. Um, and they were a very uh, interesting group. Um, both in the Republic of Rome and in the Empire. Um, they were known to be very outlandish and were kind of ridiculed for um, their lifestyles and such. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm interested in digging a little deeper, uh, you know, past the sometimes very negative uh, literary accounts we have of them. And I want to see how they were identifying themselves, like not what their reputation was. Um, among like the conservative male writers at the time, Mm -hmm. Uh, but how did they identify themselves? Were they only doing this within a ritual context, or was this some sort of early form of transgender identity? Mm -hmm. Um, Because if I were a transgender woman living in Rome at that time, that would look like a pretty appealing uh, religion to me, to be able to live my life authentically for who I am yeah um so that's the that's the subject that i'm researching right now yeah all, all of that is really fascinating
0: and i i really love um you know learning about mythology and archaeology mm. i was wondering like in the uh pantheon i guess of the most famous gods there's uh sebel or the magna mater is that how you pronounce it
1: magna mater
0: yeah magna mater okay so uh Is there any relation between this goddess and the the other gods and goddesses that we might know of already?
1: Uh, Yes. So she is primarily known as a a foreign goddess or a Phrygian goddess. Um, She she is important for that reason because uh, she's associated with Troy and the Romans trace their lineage back to Troy. Um, And so she's considered um, a part of their ancestry. even though she came from um, the Near East, she is strongly associated with uh, Dionysus or Bacchus Mm -hmm. um, because they had very similar, um, like uh, frenzied mystical rituals um, where they would just get super drunk and get into this like, crazy, hectic dancing, total frenzy um, that could be very scary uh, for people that were not familiar with the cult. Um, and so there are a few myths um, that associate her with Dionysus. Uh, there are a few myths that associate her with Zeus. Um, but the, the most interesting one, I, th- I think, is just her own myth Um in which she, she falls in love with a man named Addis. Mm-hmm. And her presence, there's a few variations of the myth, but her presence causes Addis to go insane and to castrate himself, after which he is considered to actually change into a female. Um, so he is thought of as a woman after the castration. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that kind of resonated within Rome in a certain kind of way and really um, reinforced And undermines certain ideas of masculinity and Romanitas. It wasn't mean to be a Roman man. Um, So she kind of, um, she's foreign, but she definitely like, you know, really shoehorned herself in there um, to be equal with all the other gods to say, hey, I'm Roman too, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. How do we know what people were thinking or how how they regarded this goddess? Like what kinds of primary evidence are archaeologists mainly using to infer this information?
1: Uh, so she had a temple on mm-hmm. the Palatine Hill. Uh, she had a temple there that was pretty well known. There's not much of it that remains, but there were other Um a lot of engravings a lot of public monuments um that were dedicated to her that also showed um some of the ritual practices um such as uh sacrificing a bull um the tarabolium mm-hmm. and um we also have literary writings about her about the origins of her cult um mm-hmm. about the the activity of the priests um, and we have some pretty firm dates as to um, when she arrived in Rome, which, as I said, was, was during the, the 14th year of the Second Punic mm-hmm. War. Um, the first uh, large-scale ritual called the Megalicia, um was held, uh, traditionally it was held April 11th, 191 BCE. Um, we know that like her temple burned down a few times and was rebuilt a few more times. Um, Ultimately, it was destroyed uh, with the rise of Christian iconoclasm mm-hmm. and uh, like, uh, but we still have um, some literary and some archaeological evidence. Um, we also have a few of the ritual tools that the priests use, including a uh, very fascinating castration clamp, which was actually found in the River Thames in mm-hmm. England, um, and that is now in the British Museum. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have we have a fairly good idea. Um, of what they were all about, Uh, the difficulty is in seeing how they saw themselves rather than how other people saw them. yeah.
0: And I was wondering, uh, you you mentioned that a lot of the uh, priesthood who would be um, worshipping this goddess, Mm -hmm. they would be eunuchs right yes right um and what do you think was the religious or the social significance of
1: this so um religiously uh they were following in the footsteps of addis um who was the consort of Sibylle. um so the the myth um there's a lot of ties of addis to fertility um in regards to him losing his genitals but those genitals then going into the earth, and his blood going into the earth, and causing plants to grow. Um, and so he's he sort of fits in with um, those deities uh, like Persephone, for example, who are both vegetal deities and uh, deities of death and rebirth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is part of why they they ritually castrate themselves. Um, in regards to socially, from what I'm reading, uh, both in the centuries prior to, um, they called gaining a lot of power, um, in both Greek and Roman, like medical texts and socially, um, the male genitals were considered like what made you a man. It was mm-hmm. a very physiological thing. There was a lot of importance on, you know, the phallus, the imagery of the phallus as being superior and important and the like, um, and, to give that up, to be a man in this very patriarchal society, and to give up your manhood, um, even though now we know like the the physiology and the um, mental identity don't always line up. Mm-hmm. To them, it was one and the same. And so, by physically altering yourself, you are also um, altering your condition, your actual state of being. So. It was, um, very unsettling to the, the cisgender men of Rome. Um, the idea that someone would willingly give up being top dog, being at the top of the social ladder and become a woman, which was reviled, um, in a lot of ways and not even a full woman in the eyes of the, of the Roman men. Um, there was a lot of ridicule. There was a lot of, um, I I don't know if I would call it transphobia because, um, you know, those concepts didn't really exist back then. This is a very modern term, but you can view it through that lens. Mm -hmm. Um, In in fact, some of the writings that we have, even though they did not apply to certain sexual identities the way or uh, gender identities the way that we would think of them today, Mm -hmm. um, you can see very uh, homophobic-ish sentiments in some of the writings, uh, back in the day, um, that are very close to, you know, some of the things that we might've heard in the seventies and eighties, um, or even, you know, into the present day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, these ideas, um, looking at
0: the uh, at gender in the ancient Mediterranean, did you have a lot of literature to consult when you were, um, you know, first starting to look into studying this topic? Did you have literature that was, are, is it all really new literature, or does it, you know, does this literature actually date back a little bit further?
1: There's been some work done. Um, one of them, is, uh, one of the most prominent scholars, I would say, is uh, Dr. Jacob Lath- Latham, um, who is in the, I believe, the religious studies department here. Um, he's done a lot of great work um, in examining the gender constructs of ancient Rome and how um, the cult of Magda Mater, uh worked its way into that. Um, but there hasn't been a whole lot done in regards to the gender identity question, um, other than his work. Um, there are a few scholars that have kind of touched on it in regards to noting that they don't exist within the gender binary. Um, but to my knowledge, applying a transgender lens to it hasn't really been done. Um, I don't want to say that I'm like the first, but um, I haven't come across it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so with your work uh, or the study that you are um,
0: at the moment doing, what do you what would you hope uh, are the questions you'll be able to answer? Well,
1: I feel like I want to just put it out there that, you know, transgender people have been around for a long, long time, um, probably since prehistory, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not a new phenomenon. You know, we we always hear um that's a new trend and you hear like conservatives saying, why are all these transgender people around all of a sudden and all this it's you know, and people try to point at us as, you know, a sign of the times or something. And I want to show them, no, like, even if these may not be um, transgender women in the modern sense. Um, because you know, Roman gender constructs are very different from today, even though there's some ways that's in mm-hmm. Even though that's the case, we still had this phenomenon all the way back then. Um, and, you know, I feel like that is very liberating. Um, I mean, it's part of why I was drawn to it, trying to find myself um, in history. Where do I fit in, in this long um, this very long story of human existence, yeah. and so I'm I'm not trying to like say oh they were transgender and then fit the research to you know to my to my assertion um, because there I have come across research saying well they weren't quite thought of as women they were considered a third gender entirely different from men and women um, but you know that's important to discuss also um, just to break down. The gender binary, um, and you know, show that it's it's a very recent thing. The gender binary, you know, um, and there are people that have always existed outside mm-hmm. of it. I, I really liked a couple
0: months ago where there was like a big story about this uh, pair of skeletons, mm-hmm. um, and they were called the Lovers of Modena, and um, yes, <laughs> they were dated to like the fifth or the fourth or fourth to fifth century, something like that.
1: Yes. Yeah. They, they were called the lovers up until us found out they were both men. Right. Um, and now suddenly that's not possible. They have to be brothers or sit or cousins or just friends, you know? (laughs) Um, but, and I did bring that up actually when the story broke, um, I sent in a couple of words of protest to a few of of the, uh, news websites that broke it. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, that is something that, needs to be addressed in in modern archaeology um, is this sort of intentional or unintentional erasure of LGBT identity Mm -hmm. throughout history. and that's just one example there's another example in um egypt there is a tomb of two men with a lot of artistic depictions of them um in the way that a man and his wife usually would have been depicted and even though they had wives um it's it's very clear that they they had a very strong relationship with each other um and there's always this push of like, oh, they, they were probably just very close brothers. They were probably just really good friends. And this reluctance to say, well, they could have just as been easily been lovers. They could have been a homosexual couple. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that, that's kind of the thing in a lot of ancient cultures, at least in the Mediterranean and in Egypt, um, like there, there, there was no such thing as homosexuality in the sense that we think of it today. Certainly people had, um, preferences for partners. Um, there was just this emphasis on you had to reproduce regardless of who your preferred, uh, partner might be, you had to reproduce. Mm -hmm. And so there are plenty of cases of men that, um, they married and they had children, but they still had male lovers um, because that was their sexual identity um, and that was tolerated as long as you had children you know so that was that was the big thing it was con- it, it was considered um, going against nature not to reproduce yeah. um, but in that sort of way, you could say that everybody was kind of um, obligatory bisexual I, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, but
0: like socially so like it's socially. Like the, the circumstances that most of us are um, conditioned under, mm-hmm. like would you would you say that um, you know like the onset and the the spread of Christianity would be uh, when same sex um, relationships or or different gender identities really you know worldwide uh, starts to be qu-
1: quite condemned? It depends on the specific period and the specific um, culture and even the specific region. Mm-hmm. Um, so homosexuality was not always um, accepted within even the Roman Empire when it was pagan, um, primarily because um, the man being, the cisgender man being at the top of the food chain, so to speak, um, was never supposed to be penetrated because it was considered shameful to be. You could be in a gay relationship if one of you were um, of a lower social class. So. Um, a lot of Mm -hmm. uh, pairs of homosexual lovers, one would be a citizen and one would be a slave, Um, such as the case with um, the Emperor Hadrian and Antoninus. Um, Or for example, in the Bible, um, there's this story of, a Roman centurion going up to Jesus and saying, my servant is very sick and he's going to die. Could you please heal him? And so on and so forth. Right. Um, and that word that they use for servant um, was often used to refer to a male lover in that case, um, which kind of makes sense because, you know, it's it's a different thing. If your lover's very sick, you don't want them to die versus if it were just a slave, like, so what, you could go buy another one. You know, I mean, that's how it was back then. Mm-hmm. Um, but even after the advent of Christianity, um, it survived. I mean, there were always towns um, with flourishing gay scenes. Uh, Florence was one uh, during the Middle Ages, especially during the Renaissance, Yeah, um, to the point where uh, someone from Florence, a Florencer, became slang for a gay man in, in German at that time. Uh, There were plenty of places where, um, you know, even though they acknowledged it was a a criminal activity, it was rarely ever prosecuted. Um, Even in the Victorian era, uh, there were certain ways that places where gay men would gather and, you know, be able to socialize and be able to be themselves freely. um, Those were tolerated up to a point. Um, Really, I would say the, the biggest turn in modern history was the trial of Oscar Wilde. Um, and mm-hmm. after that, there was this very striking decline, um, and and this uprise in persecution uh, of homosexuality. But prior to that, it it really comes in waves. Um, you may have very liberal periods. Um, where homosexuality was tolerated and you may have, um, for example, um, same sex couples declaring celibacy and choosing to live together and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. but it's, 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 I would not blame it solely on Christianity. Um, I, I think it just depends on the, the time and who's in power. Right. I mean, uh, King James, for example, was, known for being very flamboyant and having male lovers. Um, and here we have the King the King James Bible, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, around the world today, uh, how, how would you describe how um, conceptions of, of sexuality and gender have have changed
1: since the Roman period? I think that um, within the Western world, at least, they certainly have become more rigid. Um, I think that is one thing that uh, Christianity and uh colonialism, especially, has contributed to, um, is the idea that everything is in a binary and nothing exists outside of that, Mm -hmm. which is um, scientifically false. I mean, um, there are just as many intersex people as there are redheads, for example. Um, There have always been people that are somewhere in between, Mm -hmm. either physically or mentally. Um, And even in the animal kingdom, um, this is the case. And, you know, farmers have always known about, uh, free Martins, for example, which are, um, female cows that act as bulls and, you know, are, um, physiologically in, in terms of, um, hormones and such have the hormones of a bull and so forth. Um, and especially outside of cultures, um, that, were colonized by the West. Um, There are plenty of genders. Um, Some cultures have dozens of them. Um, And uh, especially in the case in a lot of Native American cultures um, where gender was more tied to role than to sex. And it could be kind of fluid. There could be some people that, um, you know, they they may have been assigned male at birth and growing up, but as they grow older, it's determined that, no, they actually um, are of some feminine gender, and then they just integrate into society that way. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of that was erased um, with the advent of colonialism, Um, and a lot of it is coming back. Um, I know a lot of Native American groups now have the term two-spirit in order to reclaim that culture which was lost. yeah. Outside of the West, um, you have the Hijra of India, you have the Muqay people of Mexico, um, and plenty of others. I'm not as familiar um, with cultures outside of the Mediterranean, but um, I think that we're starting to break away now from that rigid binary and um, realizing how diverse gender identity and physical um, anatomy can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I,
0: I, like I'm from Hong Kong originally and, uh, I'm uh, Filipino Chinese okay. and, uh, I, I definitely know like in Southeast Asia around Thailand and uh, Indonesia and Philippines, there are definitely also a lot of, um, you know, uh, three genders or, or mm-hmm. multiple genders or, um, genders that don't exist on any kind of binary or category system like that. It's a lot more fluid. Sure, sure. So that exists, uh, exists there as well. Um, I'm, I'm curious, Like, is your area of uh, research into this in Mediterranean archaeology a large field? Are you
1: um, also learning from, from other scholars who are working at the moment? Um, somewhat. Um, it is a very, very new field in, in terms of trying to apply a transgender um, perspective. Um, I would say transgender archaeology really has only come about maybe in the last 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. um the farthest uh transgender material um in regards to ancient history that I could find dated back to um the 1990s um the problem with it is a lot of the people who are writing um from a an LGBT perspective um they Generally, are not trained as anthropologists or archaeologists, which by no means invalidates them um, or their writings. But they are uh, coming at it from a a layman's lens, I would say, mm-hmm. either because they they did not have access to higher education and you know academics and stuff like that. Um, or that's just not where their life has taken them. Either way, like their experiences and their interpretations are certainly valid and have certainly informed my work. Um, but in working on something like the Cult of Magda Mater and examining them in an academic way, um, it can, you know, critics could easily say, oh, well, you're referencing, you know, Leslie Feinberg. Well, um, they're not an archaeologist. So, you know, why, why do you hold... Their opinion so highly and so you know mm-hmm. so I'm tr- it's a matter of trying to break down barriers um, trying to get the academic side of things more accessible to the average person and especially getting it into the hands of LGBT people yeah. and saying look this is your history too um, and likewise trying to get their perspectives into archaeology um, because if if you have never had um, a transgender perspective, it can be hard to see, um, where transgender identity pops up, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. It's just not something you think about. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm trying to cross those barriers and just, you know, try and show people like, Hey, we've always been around, so we're not going anywhere either. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That's really interesting. And, um, Uh, just thinking about like public uh, knowledge about these um, topics um, a lot of people's first uh, or or only exposure perhaps uh, will be through like museum collections Mm -hmm. and what's on display do you imagine that um, that if people uh, worked on this a little bit more and you know as as this field starts to Starts start, start to grow, we would uh, start to see more transgender-related content in museum exhibitions. Certainly.
1: Um, I would welcome that, for sure. Um, there is a lot to be discovered, I think, in terms of analyzing what we've already dug up and reinterpreting it. And that's not to say, you know, twisting it out of its Context or anything like that. But as I say, if, if you're not transgender, you're not going to see things as a transgender person would. And you might not pick up on those signals. Just for example, um, there is a story by Lucian, um, who was a, a poet, a writer um, in the uh, 3rd century AD in the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote a story which is commonly called um, the... Uh, the Dialogue of the Lesbians, he wrote a, a whole series called The Dialogue of the Courtesans, um, which have to do with uh, sex workers um, and their stories, and they're just little vignettes of of sex workers' lives. Mm-hmm. And this one, uh, The Dialogue of the Lesbians, um, it is a, a sex worker uh, describing an experience she had um, to her friend um, in which she was approached by two women or what she thought were two women, um, for her services. And one of them, uh, named Megillah takes off her wig and says, I'm not actually Megillah. My name is Megillus. I am a man. And she, the, the sex worker starts asking all these questions. Well, were you born intersex, or as, as they would have said back then, a, a hermaphrodite, after hermaphroditus, who was an, an actual intersex god. Um, were you magically hmm. transformed into a man? Were you this? Were you that? And Megillus says, no, I was born a woman, but in mind and in soul and everything else, I am a man. Um, and that's something that, you know, it's translated as the lesbians because up until recently it's been seen as, oh, it's a woman pretending to be a man. And more recently, you can, you know, look at it through a transgender lens and say, wait a minute, that really sounds like a transgender man, you know? So it's, yeah. it's just mm-hmm. reexamining, going back and doing our homework all over again. Um, and if that can be put into the public eye more, I'm sure there'll, there'll be some criticism and saying, oh, you're twisting history and all this, but mm-hmm. um, it's really just undoing the erasure that, has suppressed us for so long you know and there probably like
0: some um there were there were probably a lot of uh, assumptions made at different points when
1: finding stuff and reporting on stuff and choosing what to display sure sure so actually happening having an exhibit um dedicated to that i think would be marvelous Mm -hmm. um likewise just trying to condense condense a lot of this academic language and a lot of this, you know, highfalutin literature that usually doesn't get into the hands of people. Mm-hmm. I mean people people generally don't read like the Iliad and the Odyssey for fun, you know, if it's not part of a school assignment or something. I do. So <laughs> you did <laughs> good. Um, but that's in you know, just getting it into the public's hands in in some way or another, whether it's through museum exhibits or um you know, reinterpretations of literature, you know, maybe changing the language to fit into modern English more or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, anything of that nature as I just want the knowledge to be widespread. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: do you find it, uh, easy or, or difficult to, um, find people who
1: are uh, interested or supportive of your research? Generally, uh, the faculty here has been extremely supportive. Um, my, current advisor uh, straight up told me that if I did not finish this thesis, he would hunt me down. Uh, so <laughs> even the ones that are not that familiar with um, with transgender uh, identity, transgender politics, uh, what have you, um, they are very supportive and said, this is a, a new light uh, to be shed on this and um, it could open up you know, whole new areas of research. Where I might have difficulties um, is where people... Just do not understand transgender identity, and they usually have some kind of negative view of it from the get go um, so you know I've had students because uh, I, I teach a few students I've had students say there is only male and female why are you wasting your time you know and, and just dismissing all of my research as pure fiction or mm-hmm. um, as you know they 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 try to say oh it's just you know SJWs it's just special snowflakes blah 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 and it's like no this is like a legitimate thing um, and just it it can be difficult to um, try and spread the knowledge of it when there's people that just want to outright dismiss it before you even get started you know yeah um, but I think I think that just you know you just got to plant that seed. And, you know, let it grow mm-hmm. and just trying to disseminate the knowledge and, you know, maybe they'll change their minds in due time. I mm-hmm. hope so. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been working so far with, you know, with gay marriage and other uh, gay rights issues and transgender rights issues. A lot of people are becoming a lot more level minded. Um, yeah. Just through sheer exposure, through getting the information out there. Um, mm-hmm. So hopefully, um That's that's kind of what I want my research to do is to open up minds and say, oh, you know, I didn't think about this transgender stuff uh, in this way before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I
0: think a lot about this uh, as well. Um, Like as a podcaster, I I know that there are um, there are other kinds of podcasts out there (laughs) that um, Mm -hmm. that uh, look at these issues from a different standpoint we can say that. Uh, But, you know, I think about it a lot. And I also think that when it comes to to topics such as uh, human behavior or human sexuality or human identity, um, it's almost like people don't want to, uh, sometimes there's like an inherent fear Mm -hmm. of complicating what they understand already in their worldview. And they don't want to have that challenged by anthropologists or scientists or archaeologists. They don't want uh, you know something so personal and something so fundamental to how they understand the universe around them to be you know difficult for them
1: right yeah, that's exactly right um and I can speak through personal experience that it is very very life changing um, I actually grew up in a very evangelical very conservative um, home mm-hmm. um, and i you know realized at some point that i um was queer in some kind of way and i didn't understand that i was transgender until i was maybe 22 or 23. um but just fig- figuring out that i was some kind of lgbt person uh when i was a teenager that really butted up with what i understood about the world with what i understood the bible to say about homosexuality and so on mm-hmm. but that's actually what got me into archaeology in general is that i started looking at the Bible and saying, well, what does it actually say about this? Like in in translation, you can say just about anything you want, right? There's a million different ways to translate um, such a, a um, an ancient text. And so digging into it and putting it in with it, putting it in its historical and its cultural context, you know, the Bible was written, um, Way back in the day, you know, it wasn't written 200 years ago, it was written um, 2,000 years ago and even longer for the Old Testament. And it was written primarily for Jews um, who were living either in in Judea or under the Roman Empire. Um, And that was a very different world than now. And so trying to understand that world and understand where they were coming from when they were writing um, this book... Um, that really opened up my world a whole lot more and it changed the way I think about things. And it, I mean, it did end up changing my religion. Um, And it, it just, but it was so liberating at the same time. You know, I, I felt like, Mm -hmm. you know, there wasn't anything wrong with me because this has been around for so long. Um, And I, you know, it, it it did give me an identity crisis for quite some time um, as I was trying to work through things. But nice. all of that is very scary. I mean, change is scary, and finding out that things are more complex than you originally thought is scary. Um, and so there is a lot of like psychology involved with that. Yeah. Um, and some people may never come around. They may just hold fast to their beliefs. But on the other hand, if I can reach even just one person and have them say what I said and look back and say, oh, you know, 2,000 years ago, there was someone just like me. I do have a place in history. I feel like that can be really life-saving. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to keep on keeping on. Yeah, that's amazing.
0: Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I uh, was wondering, do you have any popular accessible books or maybe like movies or TV shows even or comic books even that you think uh, really... Uh, helped you? They were cathartic. They were informative. Do you have anything like that to recommend? Mm. Maybe like
1: documentaries even? That's difficult to say. Um, specifically in terms of what I read in in regards to like my research and everything. Um, there are a few books about um, like homosexuality in the ancient world. Uh, there's a book on homosexuality in the Bible, um, which I thought was really fascinating coming from a Christian perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, I would just start reading what other gay and transgender writers have written about the past. And like Leslie Feinberg um, is one such author and Susan Stryker. um, I, I refer to her works a lot. Um, And just like grab onto something and just go as far as you can. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just like, in the 1800s, we had um, we had Oscar Wilde. We had the Well of Loneliness. Um, we had history there, and we had people trying to erase us, but we still survived. And I think just finding that starting point, wherever it may be. Um, oh, actually, there is one book I'd recommend that I that i read recently. Uh, it was it's called When Brooklyn Was Queer. Um, I want to say the author's name is Hugh Ryan, cool. uh, but check me on check me on okay. that. It came out it came out this spring. Um, and it was a fascinating and very scholarly um, look at the history of Brooklyn um, from the 19th century up until about midway through the 20th century um, in terms of its gay history. It had so much that I didn't understand um, that I didn't know about before I read this book as well as its um intersectionality with um people of color in in brooklyn and in america um i think that's a great jumping off point for understanding um like um, like gay history in the americas at least or in in the united states at least fantastic book yeah as far as ancient history goes there's there's a lot out there nothing comes to mind that i would really recommend other than uh jacob latham's works very good okay but yeah just grab a hold of a starting point and just go as far as you can with it wherever it leads you is um, where you need to be Mm -hmm. yeah are
0: there uh, other areas of anthropology or archaeology that you have been interested in or that you want to work on in the future
1: yeah definitely um so right now i'm focusing on imperial Rome. um But I am also interested in the Bronze Age, after having taken a few classes here, um, about the Bronze Age in Greece and um, also Egypt, um, and studying their cultures and their art and trying to unravel some of the mysteries around them, because uh, we don't have a lot of writing from, um, for example, the Minoans uh, who ruled the Bronze Age of the Aegean. Mm -hmm. Also the the Etruscans, who were a people in Italy, um, who were conquered by the Romans, um, who are very fascinating. And in their culture, all of their deities, and they they had the Greek pantheon as well, um, although they knew them by different names, all of them were both male and female. Um, For example, you had a form of Aphrodite um, named Turun, who could appear with both male and female characteristics and both male and female genitals. Um there is an Aphrodite, which was worshipped on Cyprus, who is a male version of Aphrodite. Um and there are just all these like dual gender or third gender deities and mythological figures that are seen in um in Etruscan culture, in Egyptian culture, um and i suspect in in minoan culture as well although that's very speculative um so i would i would love to just keep digging even deeper and um just point a flashlight at everything that i think might be the slightest bit queer you know yeah, yeah. and just say hey look you know even if even if i'm even if i'm off the off the mark a little bit i just want to open up that conversation mm-hmm. yeah um and and so um,
0: you know, we're, we're, uh, we mentioned at the beginning that it's very busy. What are your upcoming plans before, uh, before the end of 2019?
1: Uh, well, passing my archeological statistics class would be yeah. one great goal. That would be a feather in my cap. <laughs> um, aside from that, um, I just need to really dedicate myself to my studies and hoping to get a working draft of my thesis done, um, to, to finish up in the spring semester, um, that's really it uh unfortunately you don't have a whole lot of time to de- dedicate to anything else once you're in grad school yeah. Um, but yeah just putting my nose on the grindstone cool okay well um, if people want to ask you any questions
0: or they want to sort of follow your work going into the future can they find you somewhere online
1: um at the moment i don't have any kind of website or anything like that uh, but i do welcome questions or Comments or complaints, or you know, what have you. I I welcome any kind of feedback. Um, yeah, I think that what they can do is they can email our podcast at gmail.com, sure,
0: and then I will forward them to you. That would be awesome, yeah. Um, cool. Well, before we end, I also love to ask the guests if they can come up with a hashtag. Usually, it's about something that we've talked about, or something uh, funny, or you're passionate about, and it's for the audience to use on social media. To indicate that they've listened to the whole interview. So, can you think of a fun hashtag?
1: <laughs> I don't know about fun, but how about just hashtag transgender archaeology? Okay, yeah, that's excellent. Thank you so much for that,
0: Johnny. Is there anything else that you feel that we haven't covered already? Any closing messages? Um,
1: I do want to give a closing message, um, which is just to anyone who's out there who may be questioning their identity, um, whether sexual identity or gender identity. You are not alone and you never have been. You have so many ancestors who have lived what you've lived and who experienced what you experienced. You are one of many, many, many of us all the way into prehistory and you deserve to live and you deserve to be happy. So no matter what you're going through, just hang in there. There's a place for you in history.
0: Mm It's
1: a really nice message.
0: Thanks. Yeah, so this has been great. Uh, Thank you so much, Johnny, for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. And listeners, if you want to find more information, then check out arcananth.com. I usually post new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts. The podcast also has social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. And uh, I also want to give a shout out to the patrons. Thank you so much for supporting the show. The patrons really help out uh, me in producing the show every week. And I I couldn't do it without them. Uh, Johnny, thank you so much for appearing on the show. Thank you. And listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Goodbye. (music) Thank <music> you.